Welcome to Research Lives and Culture, the podcast that offers conversations about the research environment. Each week I interview someone who works or has previously worked in research. We discuss about the approach they have taken to navigate their career, the critical decisions they have made, the joys they have had in their work, and the challenges that they have faced. I ask questions about what a supportive research environment really looks like, and about the actions that we can take to help the research culture empower people to thrive. My name is Dr. Sandrine Sou. I am a coach, facilitator, and trainer for the research environment, and your host on this podcast. I am committed to ease the path to research careers by sharing stories of researchers' lives. In this episode of the podcast, you will meet Dr. Jill Shefford, who is an expert in stem cell biology. I met Jill many years ago when she was still a PhD student at the University of Sheffield. It was a pleasure to have a conversation with her after all these years. She's now working at the University of Kent. Before moving into her current lectureship's position, she also spent some time in Australia working as a postdoctoral researcher. She also spent some time working for the Human Tissue Authority and is an expert in many issues to do with the ethical use of, of stem cells. I hope you enjoy your conversation. It's really quite exciting to meet you again, Jill, after all these years, and you've done a, a lot of work since the period I, I saw you in Sheffield. So it would be really interesting to hear about your career because you have a past that's maybe not unusual, but probably different from people that I've, uh, I've met before. So can you tell us a little bit about the early years in your research career? How did it all start? Can you give us a little uh, brief career history? Yes, I think I can try to do that. I guess it all started my interest in scientific research just after my undergraduate degree. Well, I was during my undergraduate degree. Then I, I got a technician job and I went and worked in the lab. And it was there that I really realized I got a real taste for scientific research in a real setting, right? Not in a teaching lab during my undergraduate degree or even doing a research project. But what really, it really happens, all the things that you do, like lab meetings and traveling and doing the hands-on work, doing something new and real and contributing to a big project. And I was hooked. So I, I said, yeah, you know what? I think this is what I want to do. Then why did you choose to do a PhD uh, in the UK? How did it come about? Well, that was partly personal circumstances. So as a result of the job working with uh, Professor Harry Daly at the University of Georgia in his lab as a technician, that's where I met Mark Shepherd, who uh, then became my husband. In a fairly short space of time, we met in 2003 and we were married in 2005. And three days after we got married, we moved to the UK. So Oh, wow. we, so I was going to the UK and <laughs> that was the way it was. So before I came, I managed to get a technician job at the University of Sheffield um, and I was working in a zebrafish lab. And I found that really interesting. And actually, um, my supervisor agreed to apply um, for a PhD for me. Unfortunately, we didn't get the money. So that was my first tough lesson learned because I was, uh, the technician money was gone. There was no PhD. I was there with my new husband who was a postdoc. So I actually knew I wanted to do a PhD and I was pursuing that. 
but I needed to stay in Sheffield at the time. And so I actually went to work in French Connection for my PhD. And I did look for my PhD by talking to people. Again, it was conversations and also the fact that I was involved in the school already and I wanted to stay in Sheffield and that I managed to talk a lot to Professor Dave Rice, who agreed that I could have a Krebs studentship um, and that's a funded PhD. So uh, I got money for a Krebs studentship and this was kind of back in the old days where there was a little bit more control over this sort of thing within schools. And I was luckily for me, I was able to benefit from that. And again, it was by talking. It was by talking to him, telling him what I'm interested in. And he sent me on my way with my money to walk around the school, talking to different academics, seeing if they wanted me and I wanted them. If we could work together, we had common interests. And so that's what I did. And I, I, I must say, it was hard. One of the things that's interesting is that often people have a sense that there is a clear path, but sometimes it just starts with conversation and being daring enough to go and talk to people. You say that you went to Dev Rice and did you already have an idea of what you wanted to work or not, not really? I was always interested in developmental biology. So I, I knew that I wanted to kind of stay with that. And I was quite invested in the idea of working with zebrafish. So I just wanted to look around for who else was doing something in developmental biology. When I found the Centre for Stem Cell Biology, I was so happy because I, I knew I'd been interested in stem cells for my uh, entire undergraduate. As a growing up in a Roman Catholic family, my interest in human embryonic stem cells was not, was not really applauded. But I had a lot of debates with my mom and my dad when I was in high school about this sort of thing. And so I was really keen to get more involved in that. Um, maybe it was my rebellious streak. I don't know. But I was really keen to get involved in the, with the standard of stem cell biology. When I went to talk to Professor Harry Moore, he seemed like a person that get on with, that we could work together. I was interested in his work and what they were doing. And he said yes. So it it, it was uh, really at that point, it was a dream come true for me, to be honest. I was actually pretty shocked that I had made it to that point with the road that I'd been down. So how long did you spend working uh, in the Centre for Stem Cell Biology? I started there in 2006 and uh, for the next three years. And then while I was writing up, I was doing a postdoc in the medical school in neurology with Oliver Bandman. And that was really challenging it was a very that was a very challenging time for me because I was trying to write up my PhD. That was really a, a, a challenging time, but we got through it. And uh, yeah, and so in spring two thousand ten is when I had my viva, and and all all was well. While I was working for Oliver Bandman in neurology, I was applying for other positions. While I was doing my PhD at the at the Center for Stem Cell Biology. I was talking to your friend. Luckily, we were a close-knit group of PhD students and we talked then. That's partly due to Sandrine and the work she was doing at the time, helping us all <laughs> develop a community of students. We had a bit of expertise in Sheffield with microarrays, but specifically for working with stem cells. And so this group um, was uh, led by Professor Sean Grimmond and uh, he, he was doing microarrays with stem cells. That's what I was doing in my PhD. So I thought this is perfect. Applied for it, got it went out to see him in Australia for a couple of weeks, finished my PhD, was working as a postdoc in the medical school. I got in touch with Sean and said, look, Sean, I'm finished my PhD and I'd really like to work with you. And he said, OK. And there I was. So 
I had the opportunity to then go and do a postdoc with him off the back of spending two weeks in his lab during my PhD. And so that travel scholarship was one of the most important things I did for my career. And it was, again, just because I was talking to a friend. After you had met this academic in Australia that you wanted to work with, Sometimes we, you know, we meet people and we want to work with, with them, but actually getting the funding to do a travel trip or then going from spending a couple of weeks with somebody in a, in a lab to actually getting a fellowship or, you know, a postdoc to work with them is not necessarily easy. So what was your approach in being able to actually get a position working with this person? Part of it is probably luck. In that Sean Grimmins lab was really, really well funded. So this was a group that by the time I worked with them had something, we're doing next-gen sequencing and had something like 11 sequencers. There were 40 of us. So there was money everywhere. So <laughs> money wasn't a problem. When I arrived I was put into control of a quite a generous budget, you know, and this was living the dream postdoc. I was really excited. Um, I had a great time working in Sean's group and was able to meet a lot of people, do a lot of traveling, contribute a variety of different publications, things that I had never really been involved with, like micro RNAs and just get really start to sink my teeth into you know, into sequencing and um, using these technologies, bioinformatics, and I was really enjoying myself. <laughs> so it, sound, it sounds like you had a really amazing experience as a postdoc, but obviously then you, you came back to the UK. And so what was, again, the decision? Because each of these steps, you know, decisions have to be made. I mean, just changing country when you get established in a country, so what made you decide to leave Australia to want to go back to the UK and, and again, change direction at that time? Well, um, that was a really difficult one. Um, you, so the, the position was for th three years. I was there for about nine months. Uh, and at that point, my husband, Mark, he had got a position at the same university. So we went out at the same time to Australia together, myself and my husband, both doing postdocs. Both had him being a wonderful time. Mark's career started a little bit before mine. So this was his third postdoc when he was out there. And so he was at the point where he was looking for academic positions, for PI positions. And he was so he was actively looking for those at that time. And nine months into my dream postdoc uh, in Australia, he got one. Oh, frustrating. <laughs> And, so, and it was unexpected, I must say. It, we, you know, he was kind of prospectively applying for them at that point. And so we were both pleasantly surprised, but then we had a really difficult decision to make. And we made it as a team. And we have always taken the approach that we do what's best kind of for the team. And that was what was best for the team at the time. Now, I could have stayed out in Australia for a longer time and we could have tried to do things that way that just wouldn't have worked for us on a personal level and so yeah so difficult to, to come back it was really hard and really because it was such an amazing place to be in Australia they pay postdocs quite well in Australia so we had a very nice lifestyle we used to take a boat to work every day 
sounds really amazing. Yeah. We used to take a ferry. We, you know, it's amazing. The University of Queensland Institute for Molecular Bioscience was a great place to be. There was no undergraduate teaching involved, except for undergrads who would come in and do projects in the lab. So it was just all research and it was all amazing. Did a, a lot of traveling while I was there. Came back to the UK because of some of the people I'd met while I was at the University of Queensland. I was able to carry on some of the work that I was doing when I came to the UK and that was really helpful. So I carried on some work as a in consultant. There are a lot of couples, as you know, in science. And my supervisor, Sean Grimmond, um, his wife, Christine Wells, also worked in the University of Queensland, heading up a group, works in stem cells as well. She started had started this uh, project called Stemformatics, and it was all about setting up an online resource for people who were working in the stem cell field and doing bioinformatics, but perhaps didn't have access to the team of bioinformatics experts that we had at Queensland. So anyway, I got involved in the Stemformatics project with Christine and she funded that for a year. So I had a kind of, it was kind of like another mini postdoc. I did that for a year from Canterbury. And so I managed the team remotely from Canterbury. I managed the rest of the team was in Australia. So you were doing a distance team working before COVID. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's right. And it was more challenging than what I'm doing now distance-wise because it was obviously across time zones, a big expanse of time. So that was challenging too, you know, having meetings at strange times and work not being in sync. But that was a one-year contract. So we always knew that that was going to come to an end. Luckily, that was able to end with a publication, a last author publication for me. Um, and that um, to eventually get my academic position that I have now. It's really interesting in a way of managing a team from such a distance. And I guess, were these people that you already knew or that you you met after you started? Because, I mean, I, I'm thinking about it in the context that we are now in, where people are starting positions And they're not meeting people, you know, in, in real life. And they may have to start managing people from a distance, having never actually met them or joining a position where they've never spent time together and having to work as teams. So what, what do you think that you learned about working at a distance that in a way maybe is helpful now in, in the way you may be able to work now with colleagues or what really it takes to be able to work well with people re remotely? Well, I was lucky that we did know each other before we started working remotely. So the, the project, we had a lot of lead-in time, several months of lead-in time before I actually left Australia. So I knew, I knew them. But I think in terms of your question, I think flexibility and also thinking of people. So it can be difficult to convey a tone in email, or if you're even if you're talking like when you can't see each other's faces times that can be really hard and i understand it can be hard and i think uh, having a measure of kind of understanding and not reading too much into people's actions and what they say i think really important to, to be able to establish relationship from a distance we got a lot of work done we also talked to each other like uh, we had a bit of a conversation in a work call before the work began, just like what you would do if you entered a room with someone. So that was helpful too, just being nice to each other, <laughs> extra nice. At the end, so when you finished this contract, was it then when you joined the Human Tissue Authority? 
Yes. So I knew the contract was coming to an end. So I was looking for jobs. And that was one of the challenging points in my career because I was looking for a direction. I was based in Canterbury. There wasn't an existing stem cell lab at the University of, of Kent or anywhere in Canterbury for me to join as a postdoc. I wasn't yet in a position professionally where I would have been ready to apply for my own money to start my own group. That that wasn't an option for me at that point. So it would have meant my, my choices really seemed to be postdoc in London and commuting from Canterbury, which is an hour on the fast train. So a two hour return journey every day or trying something different. And so I knew the postdoc would be an opportunity. I applied for postdocs. I went to some interviews and those opportunities would have been there. But I was really focused on trying to see if there was something different for me. And I looked into, I, I just looked at jobs on the website and I, I kind of found the HDA by chance. I didn't even know it existed, to be honest, at that point. <laughs> but I did tell them that in the interview. I think perhaps they appreciated my honesty, but I was interested in learning about them. And there were a nice group of people and they were working on regulation of cell therapies. And I had the opportunity to join a team where I would be able to use stem cells because they didn't have anybody working on stem cells at the time to predominantly work in that area. I, I, and I even was able to work with during that time, people that I knew from my PhD because they were in that field of getting human embryonic stem cells going, UK Stem Cell Bank, I was able to interact with them. Once I had the interview and I knew exactly what they were doing, I thought, actually, yeah, this could be a good fit. And in the ethics as well, like I said before, from growing up Catholic, and doing a stem cell PhD on human embryonic stem cells. Yeah, so I, I think I, it was a good fit for me. I meet a lot of postdocs who, you know, at the end of several postdocs don't necessarily have a clue what they want to do next. But in a way, from what you're describing, is that sometimes just looking around and being open to opportunities and you may not have, you know, great clarity of what it is that you may want to do, but having clarity about what interests you and in what you're saying is that having an interest in the ethics element of using embryonic stem cells was the sort of the, the anchor to actually exploring what you may be able to do. I think even sometimes, perhaps if people do know, they find that that changes out of necessity for one reason or the other. For me, that like you say, the anchor or the the common thread running through my decision making was stem cells. This is what I'm interested in, in some way, shape or form. How can I make sure that my career is staying true to this and connecting with this in some way? And I treated my work at HTA like another postdoc. That's how I thought of it. And actually, that helped me as I was there, because in a way, you know, at times I did feel like I've left academia. I never thought that I would do that. I always knew that I wanted to come back. And I, I told my supervisors that at HTA, whether that was right or wrong. When I was at HTA, I had a very nice mentor, my boss who actually had a law degree. And um, so she wasn't a scientist. I had a wonderful relationship and she was a really important mentor for me uh, as a female in the field that we were in, which is predominantly men. And also just as a, a really sound of, of, of advice and somebody who just advised me on things like okay but what do you really what do you really want how can we make this position interesting for you today as Imogen Jin Swan she was very good at helping using the expertise of the members of her team because we were all scientists with PhDs in various areas different kinds of experience 
And she was really keen on making sure that we were all invested and interested in what we were doing. And that's the way she allocated project work. So we had the meat of our job, which was going out and doing inspections of um, different types of organizations who were involved in cell therapies. So that was kind of the meat and potatoes of the role. Interesting as it was, the more interesting work was on the policy, the different types of organizations who were involved in cell therapies. So that was kind of the meat and potatoes of the role. Interesting as it was, the more interesting work was on the policy development, interacting with the EU Commission, things, going to meetings, having a collaboration with FDA. These are all opportunities that came onto my desk because she knew that I was interested in them. And, and she she allocated the work like that to her team. She took a great deal of interest in what we were interested in. Can I ask you, what, what was the most interesting part of, of the role that you had there? Where did you feel that you were really making a difference and contributing in a, in a big way? Because often when we are in the lab, you know, things can be very repetitive and, you know, increments in science are so small. And when you have a role in policy, the work that you're contributing can actually completely reshape the way something is done or something is allowed. So how did you feel that you were contributing in a broader way through that role? Work I did with hematopoietic stem cell was was probably the space where I felt like our team was was really making a meaningful contribution. We developed guidance for parents who were considering banking their cord blood privately and somewhat of a notorious private cord blood banking industry in other parts of the world as well, who um, who really aren't looked favoured upon by the public cord blood bank, such as NHSPT and the others, because of the way that they can really take advantage of parents at a devotional at a time providing misinformation, stretching the facts and making a lot of money out of it. And one thing that we worked on at HTA is providing guidance for parents on what they should do when they're quote unquote shopping for a cord blood bank, um, but also inspecting the cord blood banks and pulling them up on this misinformation and taking action against them. That was something that was really important thing that's still important now. Um, I teach hematology at the University of Kent. And that's one of my modules. And part of the reason I enjoy teaching that so much is because I get to talk about this side of it and teach on a master's course as well, where I bring this to light and students are always surprised by it. So I think public knowledge and information is still really important to me in what I do now. So why then go back into academia? What was the pull to go back? I always wanted to go back. There was always an element that was missing for me. And and I think I was missing mainly the academic freedom that comes with being based in a university. So whilst I was able to contribute as these projects came about and even be proactive with certain projects as well, starting some of my own work at HTA, the, the freedom to pursue my interests just... It just didn't exist in that type of organization to the extent that we have it in universities, because that's kind of what it's all about, isn't it? If you if you have some good ideas and some you can get some money, then, you know, there you go. You can you can do it and it should be done. And I felt that there was a lot that I wanted to do that I, I didn't have the freedom to do. So I knew it was time for a change. It was also personal lifetime for a change as well. I had uh, two children while I was working for HTA. That worked out brilliantly because they had a very nice maternity package 
very generous in the in you know the, the public sector. I had a year off with both of my kids for maternity leave. And so that that was a great part of working for that kind of organization. Whereas I think if if I had been on a short-term research contract, I probably would have felt the pressure to return perhaps a bit earlier. And I'm glad I did it the way that I did. So I had both personal and professional reasons for it just being time for time. And and then this position was advertised. I was working part-time for the Human Tissue Authority at the time. My kids were really little and that's what I wanted. I chose to go down to part-time from full-time at HTA. Um, And I wanted a part-time job and a part-time job coming up as an academic is a very rare thing. (laughs) And a part-time job came up in the university where I wanted to be, where my husband worked, and this is too perfect to not try for this. So I did, and in the end, it worked out. So here we are again at the same university, living within a mile of uh, where we work, and life is good. That sounds pretty amazing. It's one of these opportunities where it's too good to be true, but The question that I have about it is, how did you manage to convince people to take you on? What did they like about your career path? Because again, I think it's a question that many people have is, if I leave academia, will I ever be able to go back? So from the work that you had done as a postdoc and then working in policy, what was it that was really a selling point in the way the department wanted you and not somebody who had just stayed in science? So because I was interested in coming back to academia while I was working at the HTA, I got in touch with the School of Biosciences at the University of Kent and said, do you need anybody to do some teaching on policy in any of your modules? Because I'm doing this and, you know, uh, uh, you know, free. I wanted to get some experience, my services for free to come and do a bit of guest lecturing. So Professor Dan Lloyd said, yes, please. And I was able to run a workshop on a master's course that for two years while I was working for HTA. And so it was just a a short one day thing. I ran a three hour workshop for master's students on policy in stem cells, stem cell therapeutics. And so I had that under my belt. They knew me. And so I applied for the job and they were actually looking for someone with experience in the NHS, with the NHS, because a program has accreditation from the Institute for Science. And part of that is getting input from the clinical community into the course. They were looking for someone with experience to help expand the interaction with our local clinical community. So I did, I had the experience that they wanted, plus they knew me already. Which makes a big difference in reality. It's about making sure that you don't cut your bridges and and it's about really the interaction and the relationship. Yes, that's it. I think it was about, like you say, building relationships and talking to people, asking if there are opportunities and being willing to work. You know, because when I was teaching for the University of Kent, this was extra work on top of, at the time, a full-time job. But I knew that it might help me someday. And then that's what I wanted to, needed to do. So I think doing the extra work helped. Mm-hmm. So now you're working as a lecturer. So what is the job like? Well, the job when I started was your classical lecturing. Obviously now it's online for this year, so it's a bit different. But 
my job at the University of Kent is a lecturer in stem cell biology is my title. And I also am a program director for our biomedical science undergraduate degrees. So lecturing, teach different modules, I convene different modules. The most of my my week is spent preparing and delivering and planning teaching. With my program director hat on, I'm responsible for maintaining our accreditations and um, with the Institute for Biomedical Science and doing other administrative type roles. I'm now so representing my colleagues' interests with the wider university. With my program director hat on, I've been doing some, uh, getting quite a few people from our local clinical community on to um, start teaching within some of our modules. So that's been really nice going out, getting to know people from the hospitals, consultant scientists, clinical scientists, and working together with them to help shape their contribution to teaching on some of the different modules. So I teach a module where we do some histopathology and a pathologist from the hospital has um, done some digital microscopy with us, which has been really fun. So I've been interacting a lot with the hospital, doing a lot of teaching and some research has started to come across my desk, which is also really nice. I supervise final year research projects every year, dissertations, projects about communication. So not lab projects, I'm not doing lab projects, but projects about communication. We have ethics projects and business projects as well. And I think my previous experience supervising those projects has been really fun. And my projects are always about stem cells. So that's the way that I can keep kind of keep my my hand in and have a bit of protected time to keep up with the with the literature where I'm con- still contributing to my core role, which is teaching. Uh, and that's really important to me because I, I you know, I, there may be, you know, opportunities, research comes across my desk I'm involved in some of our signature research themes, talking to people about different kinds of projects that can span across disciplines. So I'd like for that to develop more, maybe co-supervise a PhD student sort of as as a first off. So we'll see how that develops. And that's really one of the exciting things for me is that the role is still developing and changing and there's room to grow and a lot of support from the school to do that. In the role that you currently have, is there an expectation that you build a research portfolio or is the position focused on the teaching and the, the research is kind of something that you can do, but there isn't an expectation? Because obviously, different universities and different lectureship positions have expectations that are different for the research. So in your case, is it kind of an add-on or is it a, a really an expectation that you build a new research portfolio? In my role, it's an add-on. So there's no expectation that I build a research portfolio at all. The The contract is called teaching and scholarship. The scholarship element technically is expectation of pedagogical scholarship. So teaching related with, with some colleagues across the university. And that's been very interesting. But, you know, I've always been very honest with my mentors and my supervisors here that my real interest would be to do scientific research. And they've been very accommodating to say, well, if there's time, you know, why not? If you have time, get involved in that. So alongside other things. So it's definitely an add on. And it's one of those things that if it comes to me, I, I, I say yes. If you reflect on the, the experience that, that you've had and they've been very diverse you know, in your career, is there anything that you will do differently? I mean, you've had a very successful career and you, you've tried lots of things and you've been very proactive. Is there something that you, you, know, you will do you know, in retrospective that you, you think I could, you know, if I had been doing that, maybe I would be doing 
something different or better? I don't know. Or in a way, do you feel quite calm and quite happy with how things have worked out? I think if you'd asked me that question in 2012, I wish I would have published lots more papers so <laughs> really early on, but I think every postdoc would probably say that. Now I have have no complaints and, and I feel really fortunate to have had the opportunities that I've had. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> so the podcast that I'm making is about life in research, but also the research culture. When you're reflecting on the experiences that you've had in various labs, in different countries, what do you think is the most important? As an individual, I think it's really important to approach your research uh, from a from the perspective of what can I learn from this experience. And I worked with a really diverse team, and there were different sets of expertise. And some of us knew about science, and some of us knew about mostly about computers, some people mostly knew about statistics, some people were very technical. We all needed each other and we all knew that we had something to bring, but we all knew we had something to learn. So I think approaching it from the perspective of everybody has something to bring to the table and uh, learning from each other and using um, each other's expertise to work together is really important. So collaboration really, Just enjoying learning. I, I like to finish the, the podcast by asking uh, people five tips about navigating research careers. If you met a bright, shiny student starting, bright, shiny postdoc starting their career you know, in, in research, what would you say to them? We all have a, you know, our own path and we all make different choices, but what are your best tips uh, for navigating joyfully the research environment? I think that's a really nice way to put it joyfully navigating and it's really important because it should be it should be enjoyed let's face it none of us are in this field because we want to become millionaires so we need to be enjoying what we're doing <laughs> like five tips that's a lot of tips but I'm going to do my best okay so I've thought about this a little bit before so I would say uh, talk a lot conversations um don't spend all your time reading so talk to people and be proactive Don't wait for advertised positions to come up. Don't wait for opportunities to come to you. Think and reflect and be proactive about what you're interested in and go and get it. Ask for it. When you talk about common interests, but stay true to your own interests. Be open-minded and flexible in how you think about those. When a really good sounding, exciting opportunity comes across your desk, but you're really busy doing other things that are maybe not as exciting, try to say yes to that exciting opportunity and see if you can spend a little less time doing the other stuff that other people think is really important. Try to say yes to those exciting things because it can take you in a really good direction for you as an individual. And I guess this is part of the last one. Trust your gut and just take risks. If it sounds like a good thing that you want to do, trust your gut and just go for it. Brilliant. Lots of really nice ideas. Lovely. Thank you. Well, Jill, it's been really a pleasure discussing with you. I wish you all the best in your online teaching. It's kind of a challenging year. And I'm sure that the story of your career path will be very helpful to lots of other people who are trying to 
figure out figure out how to navigate uh, their own career in the research environment. So thank you very much. Thanks, Sandrine. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion I had with my guest. I'm very grateful that you've been listening to us. I hope that you will join me in the future podcast. I wish you a very good day. And if you want to contribute to the podcast, I'm very interested to hear from you as I'm always happy to, to invite some new interviewees on this podcast. So if you've got an interesting story about life in research and about the research environment, get in touch with me at sandrine at tesseldevelopment.com.